Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. I also unfortunately had to increase the font on my notes, um, right? I know those of you that are of advanced age will get, and yes, these are bifocals. So there's that, you know. Then I also woke up, um, and somehow in the middle of sleeping had hurt my body, somehow. I, I remember the days when I would do something and hurt my body, and now it's transitioned to actually sleeping and somehow hurting my body. And, and I realized that you know, when I was 20, my body was my ally. You know what I mean? It was something I could rely on. It was like, yeah, that's my body. It may not be perfect, but it's basically working for me. Now, as I'm about to turn 49, it's not my ally. It's like an enemy. It's like this external thing that my body is doing to me. And there's this growing separation between who Nick is and his physical body. Because I look at pictures of myself and I'm like, who's that old fat guy? And, and what happened to the young guy? Oh, he must have eaten him, you know? What happens to us as we get older is we, we really do begin this separation of our body and the body. And it's funny because I, I, I start to talk about my body like this external force. And this happens in the context of the church as well. When, when things are working well within the context of our body, it's something that we feel part of. It's something that we feel included. It, it's actually working on our benefits. But for so many of us where we've had negative experiences, we talk about the body. And even as preachers, we've preached on the body. And, and this week, as I was just praying, God was just showing me that maybe just a shift in the way in which we think and talk about our body, the local gathering of believers. We, we think of the body, but let's maybe adjust our language and say, God, help us to think about this as our body. The church is called many things. The church is called the bride of Christ, the army of God, the field of God. It's called the temple of God, the, the family of God. And family is one of the main ways in which we experience each other in the context of the gathering. The body is a powerful metaphor. It's intricate, it's fragile, it's strong. But let's be honest, the body is also messy, complicated, and weird sometimes. It doesn't always function the way you want it to function. The church is often like that. The church is like that body that we know ultimately is for our benefit and for our good, but sometimes things are difficult and things happen. People sin. They're unpredictable. They're unkind. Leaders fail. Leaders fail you. Expectations aren't met. Promises are not kept. Grudges begin to grow and bitterness seeps in. And over the last 16 months, We've seen that quite powerfully. Over the last 16 months, we've seen our body go through some changes. We've taken some hits. Um, in the context of our relationship with our body, we've lost some body parts. There are relationships we don't have anymore. There are relationships that feel insecure. Like 16 months ago, I knew where I stood with you, and now I'm, I'm not so sure. Our body's also taken other hits in the sense that we are literally missing parts of our body. There are people from this gathering that have moved, that have gone. Our relationship is not soured with them. They're just not here anymore. And we feel that distance. We feel that lack. 
six years ago, uh, Dan and Marsha Yu, they moved to Plant in Thailand, and uh, on my little Time Hop app, I, uh, I pulled it up this morning, and there's a picture of a goodbye card that Erin drew. Um, and it's a picture of Karen with her bun and the top of her head. And it's a picture of me with a, with a beard, and, and Karen is crying. She's got one little tear, and my mouth looks jagged. <laughs> so I say to her, I say to her, what's up with my face, you know? And unlike Eric Santiago, who says, man, your face is your face. I don't know what to tell you, you know? She says to me, oh, that's your game face. Mom cries when people leave, and you put your game face on. And I'm like, whoa, that was uncalled for, you know? <laughs> And there is a sadness when we lose members of our body. There's, there's a joy in this situation where we know there's the creation of another body of Christ. But the reality is there's a sadness and we have to deal with that. Again, this week, I woke up and my arm was numb. I'm, I'm sure you people, if, if you think about it, pray for me. It's like, what on earth is happening to this guy? But I woke up and my, who's, who's woken up with their arm being numb before, right? And you're like, what is this alien thing attached to my body? You can't feel it. And so I was doing, ooh, man, that feels so weird. You know, I can't feel it. I'm pinching it. I can't feel any of it. And then I'm like walking around like, wow, look at this. This is so cool. I wonder if this is what, what happened. Eventually, the the feeling begins to come back, and it's sore. When the, when the blood starts coming back, your arm is sore. And one of the things I realized is that sometimes when we're feeling this numbness, we want to be separated from the body of Christ. And the thing is that we've got to understand is that actually maybe sometimes it's just the blood flow, our ability to remain connected with the body that is making us feel separate from the body. My arm is still attached to my body. It doesn't feel that way but it's still attached to my body. As we look forward to the return of some kind of normality, we are making decisions about how we gather. We're making decisions that are important, that are essential and biblical. And one of the things I want to make as a, as a clear statement in, in the context of this church is as a communal God cannot be fully experienced in isolation. And we cannot separate our relationship from Jesus, the head, from the body. It's like separating a head from a body and expecting life and peace and joy and purpose. It just cannot be done. We, we understand that even in the context of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a communal force. They are not separate individuals. They, they are a communal force of love and purpose and joy. And even the God that we serve, we serve a God that, that operates in community. So next week, we start our series on a summer of song. And we're going to be going through the Psalms, which is really a kind of hymnal for the, um, for the Jewish nation. And obviously, we've used it as such. But I was thinking about the whole idea of worship. And, and worship is not just singing. Worship is our lifestyle, our choices, how we treat people, how we spend our money, what we spend our money on, the things we say, the things we don't say. What we, what, what, what we do in the context of worship is so much broader than singing worship. In Mercy Commons, we talk about the four pillars of Mercy Commons as reveling in the mercy of God, demonstrating the mercy of God, proclaiming the mercy of God, and participating in acts of mercy for the glory of God. And we're going to be looking at the Psalms as, as we are able to do that. But I realized as God was speaking to me about the body that true spiritual worship requires a body. True spiritual worship requires a physical 
body in the sense that there are postures of worship. There's the raising of hands, there's lying prostrate, there's dancing, there's sitting, there's kneeling, there's all those kinds of contexts. Being able to have a voice is a function of the fact that you are connected to a body. But more importantly, true worship comes from our connection to the body of Christ. So let's read out of Romans 12, verses 1 to 18. It's a longer scripture, but you'll see why I'm choosing to read all of it. Romans 12, 1 to 18, it should appear on the screens. I appeal to you, therefore, this is Paul talking to the Roman church, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So usually what happens in the context of your Bible is one to three will be separated from four to eight and then nine will go on. But it's important that we see the idea of the fact that we are all functioning members of one body in the way in which we are conformed not to this world, but to the pattern of Christ, that we all have something to offer and that the most important thing that we offer each other is love. Having gifts, verse six, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let your love be genuine or without hypocrisy or sincere. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as depends upon you, live at peace with all men, or live peaceably with all. And when we understand our love, not for the body, but for our body, we understand that it's not a peripheral option. Loving our body is a necessity in our own spiritual formation and mission. And so the, the whole idea of Jesus saying, how will the world know that you're my disciples if you don't love one another? There is, there is a purpose to this love. This love is not just to make us feel connected and part of one another, but it's also to be able to display something of the kingdom of God in terms of the way in which specifically we act towards each other. St. Augustine says this, you are the body of Christ. In you and through you, the work of incarnation must go forward. You are to be taken, you are to be blessed, broken and distributed, so that you may be the means of grace and vehicles of eternal love. Now, the problem is, is that 
We don't love, nourish, attend to, and protect our body. And when we don't, we think it's kind of neutral, but it's actually not. It's the opposite of what we're called for. Either we don't love, nourish, attend, or protect our body, or we're in a situation where we feel unloved, unnourished, unattended to, and unprotected. And so what I've done is I've rewritten verses 9 to 16 in the way in which most of us, and I include myself, act when it comes to loving the body. So here we go. Let your love be phony and insincere. Cling to what is evil. Intentionally avoid what is good. Tolerate one another with a polite surface interaction. Outdo one another with criticism and dishonor. Be slothful and lazy if you serve the Lord and remain quietly dispassionate in spirit. Be cynical, impatient, frustrated, anxious, and occasionally pray. What is yours belongs to you. You deserve it. Those that don't have get what they deserve. Manufacture plausible excuses to avoid hospitality. Get even with those who try to persecute you. Be insulated, aloof, and cold towards those that rejoice and those that weep. Nitpick each other and be oversensitive. Make sure people know how talented and competent you are. Don't get mad, get even. And even if some people think you've gone too far, when possible, as much as depends on you, remind people that if they have a problem with you, it's their problem. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just want to pray against shame and guilt now. God, we're doing this because we want to serve you. We're doing this because your spirit lives inside us, enabling to live the way in which you've called us to live. Spirit of God, I want to pray that you would banish shame and guilt, and I want to pray that you would enable us to see the light of the glory of the face of Christ, drawing us into what it means to be able to love with your affection. It's interesting to me that only verse 11 has to do with a vertical relationship. Out of all of those verses, the way in which we are to be the most effective body of Christ is not in the grand use of our gifts, though that is important. It is in the way in which we treat each other and what we expect from each other. Ephesians 5, Paul says to another church in Ephesus, no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. So how do we nourish and cherish the church? I think the first thing is we have to understand this idea that we can't separate the body. It's our body. How do I love my body? And we sacrifice for our body, we protect our body, and we regularly attend to our body. We do this when love is more than just politeness. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This means that we are able to love people with a deep affection and be able to stand on truths and say that is not right, that is not good. We're living in a culture and a society that says you cannot love me and disagree with me. And even in the scripture, what Paul is saying to the Roman church is it is possible and necessary for you to love someone deeply and yet be able to draw a line between what is good and what is evil. 
Outdo one another in showing honor. We try and build a culture of honor in Mercy Commons. It's one of the things that we, we try and do. We try and honor people, not just the loud upfront people, but people that kind of work behind the scenes. If you've been around here, you'll, you'll see that um, in different ways. Outdo one another. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to have a competition, which is just up my street? Like, okay, this is the competition. I want you to outdo one another in showing honor. So this is the thing. I don't want you to nitpick. I don't want you to see something that someone's doing wrong. I, I, I don't want you to kind of ignore someone because their theology doesn't kind of match up with you. I want you to be intentionally looking for an opportunity to honor someone else in this community. More than just, you look great. Hey, that's fine. If that's where you want to start, that's great. But actually, God, how can I honor this person as I see Christ being formed in them? How can I honor what they've done, the sacrifice that they've made? Not just necessarily the big things. Even, you know, we honored Joey and Brittany in, in the big step that they've taken, but the reality is there are people that are providing meals for Joey and Brittany. Some of you may not even know who they are. They are incredibly important to us being able to provide an environment that makes it easier, not easy, but easier to do that. Make sense? Love is more than politeness. You know, when you walk into the store and there's the random person that says, hi, how you doing? You're like, why are you saying hello to me? Like, you know, and they're all polite. Do you believe, yeah, they're a greeter, that's their job. But do you believe for one moment? Yes, I'm like, I know where I am. Thank you, I walked in here. I'm not that old, I haven't walked in. I'm like, where am I? Oh, thank you, you know. Do, do any of you believe for one moment that that person's politeness means that they love you? No. If you do, we'll pray for you afterwards, you know. Politeness is not love. Love is practical and sacrificial. So when love is practical, we are actually sacrificing, protecting, and attending to our body. How is love practical? Well, and you may disagree with this, but prayer. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I want to encourage us, not, not just from a corporate perspective of gathering to pray, which is in and of itself warfare and loving the body, but actually praying for someone else is, is loving them. There is, there is someone in this church that sends me their prayers when they're praying for me. And it isn't just this emoji, right? Now, if you've done that, feel free. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying don't send that emoji. All I'm saying is if you put this emoji down, then do this for more than 30 seconds. Now, popcorn prayers work. I know. Some of the deepest, most profound prayers I've prayed have been, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. So I'm not saying that your prayer needs to be this long, kind of poetic sonnet. But what I am saying is when we say, let's pray for one another, let's actually intentionally pray for one another. When we send that emoji, let's actually send that emoji and pray. Or, like she did, type out the prayer that we're praying for you. This is what I'm praying for you. This is what I'm expecting God to do. This, this, the other thing. Let's use the technology to our benefit. Resources. Let's contribute. Loving, loving becomes practical when we pray for one another. Loving becomes practical when we use our resources for one another. Contribute to the needs of the saints. 
and seek to show hospitality. There's a couple in this church, uh, they turned 40 within kind of a couple of months of each other, and so their life group decided that they were going to gather some money and they were going to send them away for, um, for a weekend. Now, this couple doesn't need finances. They're, they're doing okay. I guess we could all do with some more, right? But the reality is, is it's, it's, not, it's not the case like, which has happened before in life groups. It's not the case of like having a difficult time. I'm unable to pay rent. It's not like I need money for groceries. Like, this group of people gathered together and said, how can we be generous to this couple that has been generous to us by showing us hospitality for years and give them something that is unexpected and something that is just a sense of like, hey man, we, we want to bless you. You know what that does? Is not only does it, does it bring our body closer together, but it mirrors Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just give us what we needed. He consistently gives us over and abundantly what we can ask or think or imagine. And that's why we, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. You cannot outpray Jesus. Be audacious in your prayer. Ask Him for things. Even if you think maybe this is more of a want than a need. Well, James says, okay, let's look at our passions. Let's look at why we're praying. But ultimately, once you've aligned with the Word of God, pray with an audacious prayer and see what God can do. Thirdly, when, when love is practical, we can be a non-anxious presence with people. We can rejoice with those that rejoice, and we can weep with those that weep. Two weeks ago, I spoke about us being a community that has a broad emotional width, that is able to rejoice in one moment with a person that is rejoicing, like the apprentices are rejoicing, and is able to weep with someone that is weeping. We're not trying to tone down the celebration of the one to make the other person feel important. We're able to do both, celebrate with joy and be present with a sense of, man, this has to be difficult for you. We can do that. We can be a non-anxious presence. You don't need a degree to do that. All you need is to be able to say, Jesus, how can I be a non-anxious presence in this person's life? Beyond the practical. We nourish and cherish our bodies when conflict is resolved graciously. Verse 16, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Conflict is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Why? Because all of us, you included, are sinful human beings that that God is reshaping into the image of Christ, and some of us are further along in that shaping in some areas, and some of us are a little lagging in that shaping in other areas. Conflict will happen. So it's not a matter of if. And the Scripture doesn't tell us to avoid conflict. It tells us how to deal with it. Never be wise in your own sight. Never repay evil for evil. Now, I want to say this. It's not enough to be right. It's also important to be righteous. You can be right in the certain situation, but the way in which you proceed in, in the context of that relationship also has to be righteous. So the idea when, when it comes to conflict is actually being able to say, God, am I being wise in my own sight? How about I invite someone else into this that can actually see from a different angle so that I'm not wise in my own sight? Do I just want to get even? And is this resolution in the context of the way in which I want to fulfill this, is it going to be honorable in the sight of all? And then finally, 
as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. You cannot be held hostage to someone else's anger and immaturity. You need to be able to go before your father and say, Father, I believe that I've done as much as depends on me. And that's also where the body and the rest of the community are able to actually say, no, Val, I don't think you have done that. And I think that's why Sean isn't here today. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know. Cheap shot, I know. Easy. Um, so why don't we love the body? I, it's not because we don't believe this. It's not because we don't want to do this. It's not because we don't want to live like this. In fact, Mercy Commons is an amazing example of what it means to be a loving body of Christ. Trust me, I've had the privilege of being able to travel around various churches, and I, I can say this. I'm not just padding your confidence because now something bad is going to happen. This is, this is for real. But we can always do better. And I think the reason is that so many of us find it difficult to truly love our body is because we've been hurt. We've been hurt by our body. Our tooth is broken, our knees creak, our eyes are messed up, and, and there's the sense of like, I don't know that I actually even want to be there anymore. Now, with your own body, you don't have a choice, right? You don't have a choice in the context of being part of the body of Christ. There is no such thing as solitary Christianity, John Wesley tells us. And so in the sense of actually being able to say, I know we'll solve this, it'll just be Jesus and me. And Jesus is like, well, that wasn't the plan. The plan was that I would build a body so that the rest of the world could see something of the kingdom of God in the collection of all of these different people that have one thing in common, Jesus is king. Fatigue, hurt, and cynicism, and I don't have time to go into that, but I do think the most destructive thing about us effectively functioning as a body is comparison. When I think of comparison, I'm like, Man, I would love to have Neil's abs, you know. I would love to have, you know, I would love to, to, to pray the way that John Mark prays. Or, you know, I would love to have James's voice, you know. Actually, who am I kidding? I would love to have most of what James has. So, you know. Um, and, and we look at other people and we compare what we have. And if it wasn't for Neil, this is all your fault, I'd be happy with my abs. You know, so it's Neil's fault that he just keeps showing them off everywhere he can. You know, no, there's something within us that is—it's kind of hardwired, and since the fall, where we look at what someone else has, we diminish what we have, and we actually say, "I want that." Now, let me ask you a question: How many of you? When I told the story about this couple that were blessed, one of your thoughts was like, how come that's never happened to me? So the ability to actually rejoice when someone else is blessed, when someone else is honored, when, when, when some other part or less honorable part of the body is actually raised up is the ability to actually love our body. Now look, I know that's hard. I know it's hard for us to deal with, but we can't compare because that will ruin us. We don't just compare what we have or what we don't have. We compare how tr people treat us. We compare our perceived value. We compare our gifts. We compare our marriages. We compare our personalities. 
So how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram, right? The, the whole personality thing. It's, it's just a way of indicating what kind of personality you are, and it's numbered from one to nine. So Paul talks to the Corinthians about the Enneagram, and this is what he says. <laughs> he says in uh, chapter 12, verse 19, uh, 15, he says, he says, if an Enneagram 9 should say, because I'm not an 8, I do not belong to the body, that would not make her any less part of the body. And if a 2 should say, because I'm not a 3, I do not belong to the body, that would not make her any less part of the body. If the whole body were 3s, where would the sense of empathy be? If the whole body were 9s, where would the sense of drive be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one as He chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The introvert cannot say to the extrovert, I have no need of you. Nor can the thoughtful intellectual to the practical doer, I have no need of you. Comparison is dangerous because what it does is it leads to two things. It leads to the sense of insecurity and inferiority and hard work, or it leads to withdrawal and passivity. So there's this, um, there's this condition when you overwork your body, it's called rhabdo. I don't know what the whole term is. Rhabdomyolysis. But basically what you do is you exert your muscles to the point at which your muscles begin to act against you. Your, your body is literally now no longer your ally and working against you and releases proteins into the bloodstream. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing. And that's what happens to some of us. When we compare, we're like, I'm going to try harder to be like Neil. I'm going to try harder to be like Matt. I'm going to try harder to be like Stephanie. So I want what she has. I'm going to try harder to be able to do that. What happens is we work hard, we work hard, and ultimately what, what we do is we damage our own body. We're all gifted, but we compare the types of gifts and also the amount of giftedness that we have. Because eyes always want to be hands, hands always want to be eyes, nines always want to be something else, and eights are just happy because that's the number, you know? So... You know, a while back, I stopped listening to Tim Keller. I was just so completely overwhelmed because I wanted to be able to preach like him. And, uh, and so I just, I just stopped listening. And then someone, someone in, in the context of this community came up to me and said, Nick, I'm so grateful that you're not slick when you preach. And they meant it as a compliment, I think. And I just went home, and I'm like, that's awesome. I mean, I know what she meant, but like, I just, I, I just may as well give up. God spoke to me and said, you know what? I called you to preach. I gifted you to preach. Stop comparing the amount of gifting. Just live in the reality of what I've called you to do. And you may not, you may not have the kinds of gifting or the amount of gifting that you want, but what you don't want to do is throw out the baby with the bathwater and just say, I'm, I'm not even going to try, or that's it. Every single one of my sermons is going to be like Tim Keller. I'm going to quote from these obscure people that I've never heard of before. I've never read a single one of their books, but if he's quoted them, then I'm going to quote them, you know? Or I just give up and just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. 
The, the challenge with comparison is that it has a value judgment attached that is different from being able to learn from someone. Now, can I learn from someone that is better at something than me? Can I learn from someone like Tim Keller? Absolutely, I can learn from them. But comparison begins to crush us when we're like, oh, God, I can't do it like them. What you've got to ask God is, is am I comparing my value with the value that I see in them? Because that will crush you. If you weren't created to be a hand, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you will not become an eye. But you can become a better hand if you embrace that and say, God, thank you for making me a hand. Nothing will tire you out more. Trust me, I know this, because I'm given to overwork rather than slothfulness. Nothing will tire you more than trying to be what you weren't created to be. Now, trust me, and those of you that know me, I'm not against hard work. I'm not against investing in your gifts and talents. But what I am saying is that we, when we compare ourselves to each other and we actually say, I want this or that is of higher value, we're just setting ourselves on a path of just absolute, absolute fatigue. All comparison leads to atrophy. So on the one side, we have rhabdo, which means your body fights against you, and it creates the system where, you, um, where, where your muscles fight against you. The other side is atrophy, where we don't use any of our muscles. And those of you that have been in any kind of long-term kind of care where you've been lying in a bed, ultimately what happens is your muscles, through lack of use, begin to atrophy. And not only are you not able to jump and run, but now you're not even able to walk because your muscles have atrophied. The key statement that we make to ourselves here is, I am not needed. And we, we say that to ourselves and we begin to believe that. Is this is not the kind of church where my gifting is needed. And so we do what we sometimes do when we're eight or nine years old. And we go to the field and we play, we bring our ball and we play soccer and it's not going our way. So what do we do? We take our ball and we go home because you can't play without my ball. And so most of us would not do that if, if I said to you, you know, Ben, you're just taking your ball and going home. Things aren't going your way. And no, no, no. Now we hide it in much, much better ways. But ultimately what happens is, is if our gift or the value of our gift or the thing that's important to us is not implemented in the way we feel like it should be implemented, then the challenge that we have is to draw back to take our ball and to go home. But that leads to apathy. You know, in the dark, what is more important, the hand or the eye? There are different circumstances where different gifts are utilized. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how well you can see. If it's dark, I want someone who's actually pretty good at feeling around. I'm going to use my hands in those kinds of circumstances. If someone is in pain because they've lost a child, they don't need a sermon. They need a non-anxious presence to weep with them. If someone has just moved here and their family is, um, is messed up and they don't have any community of which to speak of, uh, they don't need a sermon on community and family. They need someone to help them move. That's being a non-anxious person. That's loving. That's being practical. All of us can do something. All of us are able to participate. So in closing, why should we regularly attend to our body? Well, the first and probably most important reason is that we are commanded to, 
There's an obedience in, in, in the sense that we attend to our body when we actually make attendance with the body a priority. That's Hebrews 10.25. But this is, this is the statement that I want you to understand. I don't have everything, but I do have something that someone else needs. I may not have everything, and I may not even have the thing that I really wish I had, but I do have something that someone else needs. I don't really believe that God wants to use me. I don't really believe that He's gifted me, so I'm not going to put myself in a place of risk to be able to, to move in that way. I mean, April was a great example this morning. April is not someone, by her own admission, that, that gets visions or words or prophetic moments, but in this moment, she stepped out of her comfort zone. Why? For her good? No so that she could bless Joey and Brittany. He said, I'm actually going to step out, and I'm actually going to, I'm going to give them what I said. What they do with it is between them and God. But I know I have something to give. I may not have everything, but I have something to give. Even simple faithfulness and presence, just being here. Because missing body parts leads to overcompensation. The reason why... My tooth broke, one of the reasons, outside of bad oral hygiene, when in my 20s. So now what I've done is I've taken that tooth that looks awful, and I've, I'm going to put it on my kid's mirror and say, this is why you should breast and floss every day. You know what I mean? I, I'm also going to get those photos. Have you ever been in the dentist's office, those photos of the most disgusting mouth you've ever seen? Yeah, and stick that on the mirror, you know? And that'll work for three days, and then we'll have to do something else, you know? But one of the reasons is because I kept chewing on the one side, because, because of poor oral hygiene, I'd, I'd missing teeth on the other side. And so what happens is, when we don't regularly attend to the body, when body parts are missing, other parts of the body have to pick up greater slack, and injuries happen as a result. And so that's another reason that we're called to attend. The manifest corporate presence of God, the transcendent God becomes imminent to us. We experience love and we impart love. We believe that God speaks not only through His Word, not only through worship, but in the way in which He has put us together. That's why in that passage in Romans, it talks about various gifts. A couple of weeks ago, Steph stood up here, Lacey stood up here, and led us in a way that was super helpful in terms of what God wanted to say through His body and to His body. Worship is entirely different in intensity and in joy and outcome when we are together. Why? Because we all have something to bring. It's, it, it, it's a way of, of experiencing God in a way that is different even though we know that we are part of the universal body of Christ. Banjo, you can come up here. Finally, one of the ways that we regularly attend or should regularly attend to our bodies, not only is it biblically uh, a response to biblical obedience, not only do we do it because even though I may not have everything, I have something to offer. We don't just do it because we want to experience the manifest corporate presence of God. We do it because... As a church, as a local gathering of believers, God has called us to a word spirit journey. And a word spirit journey is basically this. We honor the word of God in its fullness and completeness. 
We don't add anything to it, but we do believe that God speaks to and through His people. We can't do that if we're alone, because there are varieties of gifts that are used within the context of this community. The Spirit speaks through us, the Spirit speaks to us, and the Spirit speaks for the welfare of this body. So we're going to practice this during communion. What we're going to do is we're going to gather in groups. If you feel comfortable, if you're not at a place where you feel comfortable to do this, that's okay. But we're going to gather in groups of four and five. We're going to go and get the elements. And there's a variety of different elements there. There's the prepackaged ones. There's the matzo. And over there, there is actual wine and bread. So children, not that one. Okay. And I would love you to get together with someone and to just pray for your body. To take communion in that sense and to actually say, can I pray for you as we take communion together? So this is what we're going to do. I'm just I'm going to bring this to a close. We're going to sing a song. And then during that song, I want you to feel free to get up and to grab elements of communion. Um, once you put up the, uh, Steph, the Roman scripture, not the paraphrase, the real one. And as I read what I'm saying about Jesus, I want you to refer to what Paul is asking this community to do. I want you to remember that Jesus' love was genuine and sincere, without hypocrisy. It was practical it was rescuing. It was powerful. That Jesus loves us with a brotherly affection. That Jesus didn't just abhor what is evil, but he defeated evil by his death, resurrection, and ascension. That Jesus still seeks us out to show us honor, and he calls us friends. That Jesus was and is full of zeal, fervent in spirit. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he is alive now praying for us. That Jesus didn't just contribute to our needs, but he fully gave himself as a sacrifice for our souls. That he blessed those who cursed him, that he rejoiced with the joyful, and he wept with the sorrowful. That he did not come as a haughty king, he came as a lowly servant. And when that scripture says, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with all men, Jesus made it possible for us to be at peace with God, at peace with others, and at peace with ourselves. Mercy Commons, I cannot promise you a perfect body, but I can promise you a perfect head. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit that brings glory and honor to the Father. I want to thank you that as we gather, that we choose to make much of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to rescue us, and that Jesus, you ascended on high and sent the Spirit to dwell in us. And that as we respond in worship and communion, I want to pray that you would lead us. I want to pray you would speak to us. 
I'm going to pray we would even risk to be able to minister to our body together. What a privilege it is to have you as our head and to call ourselves the body of Christ. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.